There are many sad things to mourn at, as the uh, newspaper industry has gone sort of downhill over the past few years. Uh, you get the whole fake news phenomenon. You don't know what to believe when you see it on the Internet. But I have a little nostalgic reason for missing the newspaper coming in the morning. I can remember I would go to my grandparents' house almost every weekend because they were about a 20-minute walk away. And one of the things I loved doing was sitting down at the table while my grandma or my grandpa were finishing the crossword puzzles or doing a Sudoku puzzle. And they used to really enjoy that. It would take them quite a while and keep their minds sharp. I mention that not just because of nostalgia, but I mention that because today in our gospel lesson from Mark chapter 13, frankly, I think there's a big temptation in Christian history to look at passages like this and see them as a sort of Sudoku puzzle. You look at this and sort of think, oh, when, when's Jesus coming? And how do I calculate the time? And what exactly is a... Sadly, that mode of interpretation has often taken over many parts of the Bible. And so even today, you'll hear stories from time to time about some preacher somewhere in Tennessee said, Jesus is definitely coming back in October 2017. And then you have to backtrack a little bit and maybe it's 2027. And all it really does is makes people frustrated. I want to speak to you today about this gospel, this part of uh, Mark's gospel, chapter 13, which is sometimes known as the little apocalypse, because I think it's a misunderstood genre in scripture. It's something our eyes glaze over and we often dismiss because of preachers always looking at this as some puzzle about how to figure out the future. And in fact, the scriptures aren't there to satisfy our curiosity about the future. Jesus doesn't speak to make us wizards of, of prophecy. Jesus speaks so that we might come to understand how better to love and serve him and to navigate our lives in a difficult situation. So I'd like to speak to you, and you can strap yourselves in. I'll give you a little bit of a Bible lesson on what apocalyptic literature is, and then to speak to you a little bit about what I think Jesus was meaning when he was speaking there and about why it continues to be important for us today. What do you think of when you think of the word apocalypse? Well, maybe you think of those sort of uh, gory zombie movies you see nowadays all on Netflix, uh, or maybe you think of, you know, nuclear war and you think of people sort of scrambling to uh, survive after a big attack. The word apocalypse has now come to mean in, in common language, like huge disaster, wrath of God pouring out from the heavens, terrible stuff going on. Uh, and there's a hint of that, of course. Uh, but the reason people use that word apocalypse to talk about this is because sometimes the, the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible, is called the Apocalypse of St. John. St. John was the one who traditionally was credited with seeing some visions that God gave him that he wrote down in the book at the end of the Bible. But apocalypse isn't simply something about how the future will be a disaster. Apocalypse is a Greek word that literally means unveiling. Sometimes we call it the revelation of St. John because it's sort of a way in which, if you can think uh, that phrase we have in English, to sort of draw back the curtain to see how things are really going on. And that's a helpful thing for us to understand when we get little pieces of apocalyptic literature in the Bible. So if you read parts of Daniel, this little part of Mark, uh, it's there in the book of Revelation and scattered a bit in other places in the Bible. Because it's tempting to think God's showing us just what the future is, but instead the idea of an apocalypse is actually something that shows us a sort of a vision that's hard for us to see when we're just looking at the material world. So I was trying to explain what that means, and and... I thought maybe a good way of coming back to that is the idea of having really vivid dreams. Have you ever had a dream where you wake up and it just felt like, wow, I was almost in this sort of hyper-reality? Uh, you know, sometimes you have weird dreams about, you know, talking rabbits or, or Alice in Wonderland stuff, and sometimes they're just mundane dreams. Sometimes you have dreams about going shopping. 
but sometimes, whether it's because you're, you know, uh, been stressed out or maybe you're on new medication or ate too much cheese before you went to bed, whatever, you feel like you're in this dream and it is so vivid and real, it almost feels more vivid and real than waking life does. And you wake up and you have to shake yourself and feel, oh, am I really awake? Like, this seals almost like it's less real than my dream was. And where am I, waking or sleeping? And those sorts of dreams are things that are traditionally Christians and many people, it's, it's a very common thing in First Nations culture as well, that dreams have real significance. And the idea of a really vivid dream is the idea that you've seen something that kind of lies beyond the surface. And sometimes it's sort of a harbinger of what's to come. But a lot of times it's simply a, a sort of lens to look at what the, the present is holding on to. So if we look at the book of Revelation, it would be a good example. Uh, sometimes you see things uh, that are talking about the future. It ends with the new Jerusalem. I spoke about an All Saints Sunday. It comes to an end and all things are restored. But a lot of the book of Revelation is actually John speaking to fellow Christians during a time of persecution in the Roman Empire and explaining to them how you interpret what's going on. One of the great images that's really disturbing in, in the book of Revelation is the idea of the, the whore of Babylon. And the idea is, is that this is sort of a key that John's speaking about what Rome is like in his day. Rome is a place where on the one side they love her and worship her because Rome brings in a lot of money. But in the meantime, they're being corrupted many times by Rome's cruelty and by the ways in which Rome makes people want to look for material things instead of things that are spiritually important. One of the things that the church marked itself out as at the beginning of its history and, and at times where the church has been really faithful is caring for the poor and for the weak, and Rome was terrible at it because Rome hated slaves and Rome loved gladiatorial battles. So when we look at the book of Revelation, it's not just about what the fall will be in the future, but about the way that Rome can corrupt people's hearts. You'll read those things, and if all you're doing is thinking about the future, you forget that, in fact, that's something that speaks to us today. When Rome says that you need to have uh, me so that you can buy and sell, I was just watching a, a, a video on YouTube a few weeks ago. And YouTube has lots of sort of random stuff, but everybody's got a phone now, and so uh, be careful every time you pick your nose in traffic because somebody's probably filming you and going to put it up on, on YouTube. But in this case, he was a man who was taking a train in China. And so he was there, and he recorded uh, the recording that was going on uh, over the uh, loudspeakers. And so it's a fancy new train, and so uh, underneath, uh, so it was recorded, and underneath was the, the, the subtitles. And it was explaining that, a whole bunch of rules. People leaving, uh, you know, gum under their seats, or people smoking in the station, those sorts of things, will be monitored, and their credit, social credit score will be lowered. What he meant was, is that in China today, there's a, a, a movement now that the government is imposing, so that if you are good and obedient as a citizen and don't, crit, um, don't criticize the government, you get sort of a, a credit score, just like you would if you were a person who saved really well. But if you don't, or you're critical of the government, or maybe you uh, put uh, chewing gum under your seat on the, the, the train, then it goes lower. And not only does the government monitor it, your employers do. They check out your credit score, and you think, well, you know, I did something wrong, or I made a criticism of the government, now a company won't hold me. Now, of course, nowadays, too, we don't do that, thankfully, in Canada, but look at how easily now, every once in a while, somebody who's big uh, uh, in a, an executive or something like that or runs for political office, they look through their social media history and they said something stupid as a teenager, they're gone. One of the things that that, that vision of, of Rome and, and in, in Revelation, which is so hard, 
for us to read nevertheless points to a recurring reality throughout human history. The governments and powerful organizations regularly want to take the place that belongs to God alone, to control your life in such ways that, in fact, they, they, they want to take the place that God alone deserves. If we read Revelation just as a book of the future, we'll forget that this is a warning about the way that tyranny or even things like a desire for material benefit can word its, worm its way into our hearts and change the way that we actually act. So when we look at the apocalyptic literature here in Mark, it's really important that we look at it and don't just say, well, this is something that's going to happen at the end of the world. Instead, Jesus is speaking to his contemporary audience about something that's going to happen, but also something that speaks to us, even though we live 2,000 years later. So what is Jesus talking about here? Jesus, I think, most of all, is actually talking not about the end of the world, but about the end of Jerusalem. Listen to the words that Jesus says and why he says them. In chapter 13, one of his disciples says, Look, teacher, what large stones and what large buildings. Jesus asked him, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left here upon another, and all will be thrown down. Then he says about wars and rumors of wars. One of the things we know from history is, is that only a few decades after Jesus says these words, probably in the 30s AD, the Roman government came, completely destroyed Jerusalem, and dragged every stone of the temple and threw them and scattered them throughout the Holy Land. Today, if you ever hear about the Temple Mount that sometimes is a cause of real friction amongst Jews and Muslims in Jerusalem, that's what's left of the temple. In fact, all that is is a foundation wall because every stone of the temple was taken down and so the Romans, in fact, forced some of the Jewish slaves after they captured Jerusalem to drag stones all the way to the ocean, the Mediterranean, and throw it into the ocean so they could never rebuild it. Two thousands later, 2,000 years later, even though the nation of Israel is now there, no temple has been made. Jesus, I think, is speaking here about the imminent destruction of Jerusalem. The wars and the armies he's talking about are about the Roman armies. And when he talks about persecution, he talks about the persecution that was going to happen amongst Christians at the time. He says that you will be beaten and thrown out. And if you read the first chapters of Acts, that's exactly what's happening to the church. The church wants to be faithful. A person like Stephen, the first deacon, all he does is that he feeds widows and orphans. And what does he get in exchange for that? He gets stoned to death, the first Christian martyr. Jesus is warning and saying there's a destruction coming on Jerusalem. And particularly it's coming on Jerusalem because of the way that it treats those who follow Christ, and because of the way it treats those who are widows and orphans. You will have heard last week as Jesus arguing with the Pharisees and the temple leaders about the way they swallow up widows' houses, and then he shows a poor widow who has nothing left but two pennies to give to the temple. And Jesus says this is a destruction, and it is terrible. And it's terrible because you are people who are creating situations where widows can't even live because of your lack of charity and care for them. When we look throughout the Old Testament, what do we tell about judgment? Judgment comes because of idolatry and because of the way that the poor and the innocent are treated. And Jesus is calling upon judgment in Jerusalem. It would be very easy for us to look at that and say, okay, no problem. Those guys in Jerusalem were terrible, right? The sad reality is, is that that is often how Christians have looked at it. One of the most horrible things that Christian history has to deal with is the way that sometimes it's looked at these and said, well, you know what it is, it's the Jews, right? Even Martin Luther, our uh, church is a Lutheran church and an Anglican one, and Martin Luther said some pretty terrible things about Jewish people. Uh, he said some pretty terrible things about Mennonites as well, which are uh, where I grew up, and so he kind of scattered some of his nastiness. But the fact of the matter is, as many times people have used this as an excuse to criticize the Jews instead of really asking a question. The question I think Jesus is asking us is to say, 
Are we like the people Jesus criticized so long ago? And how is it that we're treating the faithful? How is it that we're treating those who are broken and hurting? And are we owning the mistakes and the sins of our culture and not just us as individuals? And one of the sad truths about uh, what's going on today in the world, I mentioned China. But China is not only cracking down on citizens and free thought. China has been undergoing a really renewed persecution of the church lately. In fact, one of the things that's sad about how Christians are treated throughout the world is that often uh, they're persecuted very heavily, and yet very few people pay attention to it. You may have seen, thankfully, it made the headlines a little bit, but then it faded away. There's a woman named Asia Bibi. Asia Bibi is a woman who is in, uh, born and raised in Pakistan, but is a Christian. Christians probably make up 2 or 3% of Pakistan's population. Uh, and she was accused eight years ago. Uh, eight years ago, two women, while they were working together in the field, she uh, went to fetch some water and offered them water, and she said, and they told her they wouldn't take water from her because she's a Christian, and they were Muslim. And then uh, they accused her of blaspheming the Prophet Muhammad. And so all they had was these two women's word. And so for eight years, she's been on death row. And the sad fact is, is that she denies she said it, but even if she had said it, simply saying something wrong brought about a death sentence. And in fact, one of the reasons for eight years she's been on death row is that the Supreme Court, her lawyer appealed to it, is that the Supreme Court, one of the judges refused to hear it because he knew very well what would happen. Somebody would kill him if he uh, ruled in the wrong way. So eventually, the three justices of the Supreme Court had the courage to say that this has to be thrown out. But you know what happened? Gigantic riot throughout all of Pakistan. Uh, although she was free, now she's under house arrest for her own protection. The sad truth is, is that so much of the West has not even paid attention. I just read recently that uh, Britain, uh, when they were asked whether they would give uh, asylum to this woman, uh, said no. Uh, and they were afraid uh, that they couldn't protect her domestically because of uh, religious extremism in their own country. France and Germany, last I checked, haven't offered uh, any opportunity for her to flee and to be safe in a place that she wouldn't get killed. Her story is famous, but unfortunately it's a story that goes on and on. We hear about the sad reality of Syria, and I think it's a matter of tremendous pride that Canada, unlike certain nations, is quite willing to open its doors and say this horrifying civil war is a place where people could find safety. And one of the little-known statistics is, is that Syria was about 10% Christian before the civil war started. Only about 2% of the refugees we've accepted are Christian. Most Christians don't come here because they're afraid of going to UN camps, where if they go into the camp, they'll be killed by extremists. And so they don't. They'll go through unofficial channels or private uh, sponsorship. Nobody seems to raise an eyebrow. What do we do? And how many of us in the church pay attention to the reality of that persecution? And what will Jesus say to us when he said, well, what did you do to the least of my brothers and sisters? So that's too far away. Look closer to home. I just remember reading uh, a couple years ago, we discussed this at the board of directors, that a young uh, native man was held in isolation uh, in prison. In, in a standard isolating technique, they put him there for months upon months upon months where he didn't see another human being, in which here's a person trapped in an Ontario prison right uh, in our own province. And thankfully, the hue and cry over this, and people wrote to the Attorney General to try and change the way that they do things, but it is a sad reality that in our nation, prisoners are often not thought of at all. Once upon a time, I was actually considering being a prison chaplain, and uh, I looked into it, and one of the sad facts is, quietly, without people paying much attention, the government's been slashing funding to chaplaincies, and so there aren't very many available, and very few chaplains that are working in the prison system. Or you think about how often, uh, from many places, all you hear is not rehabilitation, but punishment. 
Jesus speaks about how uh, we will be rewarded if we visit prisoners, and yet so few people care about them. We think about the many ways in which we as a church are asked, like, are we thinking about our culture and the way that it treats the marginalized and the broken? Are we thinking about how those who have mental health issues and other places in which people are not cared for because the society does not seem to value them at all? What's our response? We can't do everything. We are just human beings, and the Lord has things in his hands. It is his providence we rely on. But what results or what uh, actual abilities we have, we need to exercise. Here's a few things to do. When I uh, record sermons, I do each Sunday, and we put them up on the, on the Internet. I always put a little section on clicks that you can click on to to note uh, things that you can do or look up. And what I'll be putting there are some links to Christian organizations that advocate for those suffering religious persecution and also to organizations that advocate for prisoners. We have a responsibility as Christians to care about what our culture does to those that are marginalized. When it comes even closer to home, I think one of the things Jesus really asks of us is, do we really care about those that other people don't care about? We talk about widows and orphans, and we think of this poor widow who's destitute. But we also know, if we look at social conditions, how many widows, frankly, are lonely. You go to how many retirement homes or nursing homes throughout our city in which, yes, they're fed well, yes, there's many uh, hangings on the wall and things that are attractive materially, and yet they live without any real social network. And how sadly often, as a funeral, I'm called upon to do uh, funeral services for somebody older and so few people come because their friends have passed on. How wonderful it would be to say that I have friends even though I'm older because the people that I grew up with, the people I lived next to, the people I went to church with, never stopped remembering me and visited me when I was sick and when I was alone. It's not always easy. I think Jesus gives us a chilling warning here to say, you are meant to be my hands and my feet in this world. And if you don't speak up, if you don't reach out, you'll have missed a tremendous opportunity to show this world how deeply I love it. So here's our challenge as we get into the happy season of Christmas very soon, in which we receive wonderful gifts from other people, in which we celebrate the goodness of the Lord in coming to be with us. But it'd also be a challenge not to forget those that are left out. But as we get towards that season of Advent and we examine our own lives and our own culture, to start asking serious questions about how we joyfully and following Christ in his footsteps to be the hands and feet he wants us to be, and to show this world that the persecuted, the broken, and the hurting are not forgotten, because the Lord never forgets them, and in fact has a special place in his heart for all those who cry out to him in misery and sorrow, and sends people like you and me to give them the peace and the hope and the comfort they need.